The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Family Matters with your host, Dr. Virginia Collin. In this program, we will explore some of the challenges families face and the solutions they create in today's world, where marriage, parenting, and family forms are not what they once were. Now, here is Dr. Virginia Collin. Welcome to Family Matters. I'm your host, Virginia Collin. Today, I have two guests who will be talking with me about grief and recovery after the death of a spouse. My first guest is Fred Abrams. He's a retired Air Force fighter pilot and program manager and was married for for 33 years to Nancy, who was a nurse, and she died following a three-year battle with with the effects of an autoimmune disease. My second guest is Jerry Abrams, and she is also a pediatric nurse, She was married for 27 years to Steve, who was an Air Force chaplain and a real estate investor. He died five weeks after being diagnosed with stomach cancer. September 22. That's a big day for you, Fred and Jerry. Tell me about what happened 11 years ago. (laughs) We both showed up in the same hospice grief support group uh, and met and went through their program, ended up dating, and uh, getting married exactly a year later on September twenty second, 2005. So this is your 10th anniversary? Correct. Awesome. (laughs) Well, it's great to have you on the show. And I've read your book, well, most of your book, Thanks for the Dance, So I know that you have a lot to share to help other people who have to deal with the loss of a spouse. Um, Why did you decide to write the book? Well, we saw how much uh, the other people in our hospice group, group were suffering, and then we started connecting with other people who had lost a spouse. And we became almost evangelical about trying to help other people who found themselves where we were, to comfort them, to give them advice. And every time we spoke to them, they seemed really receptive about what we had to say and so forth. So we decided to put it into a book that told our stories and uh, described what to expect, because there were a lot of things that happened that uh, we didn't expect. And then we explained what helped us through the process. But I guess important, uh, we wanted others to understand that uh, the healing process from losing your spouse doesn't make you stop missing your late spouse. The healing process keeps that grief and uh, despair from controlling your life. So the book Mm -hmm. is really about how we were able to do this. And I guess one of my favorite quotes, and it ties into our title of dancing, is Vivian Green said, life's not about waiting for the storms to pass. 
It's about learning to dance in the rain. So there is not really a getting past it. There's not a magical closure. But uh, we wanted people to have a realistic expectation uh, that realizing you, and this is from uh, Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who is uh, recognized as one of the experts on grieving, um, you know, you will be whole again, but you're never going to be the same again. And you shouldn't be, and you shouldn't want to be. Got it. So what happens first when you lose your spouse? How? What's the first set of feelings that comes along? Um, mine was just numbness. Yeah, that's what I would say, too, completely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's what Kubler-Ross said. Initially, there's just a period of shock. Just you can't feel the emotions yet. It's too intense, so you just don't feel it yet. And then uh, what next? Uh, do you go straight from that to feeling really, really depressed? Or how did it go for you? Well, um, I guess that there are many different uh, ways that one loses a spouse. I am really grateful that I had three years from uh, Nancy's diagnosis till she eventually died, and that gave us time to talk and so forth. But uh, we encountered a lot of people who said goodbye to their spouse in the morning, and that was the last goodbye they ever got to say. And we thought they probably had a rougher time than uh, any of us. Jerry? Oh, well, of course, I had just five weeks, and we were still, or at least my husband was, for sure, uh, pretty much still in denial. He felt like he was um, going to be healed and was being healed, and yet as a nurse I was seeing, you know, all the symptoms and uh, side effects of the medication and so forth, and I realized that short of a a miracle from God, it it just wasn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. But your hu- still your didn't husband have a long time to um, prepare emotionally for it. Your I husband had cancer. Together and trying to do the best I could. My children were younger, so I was also trying to be there for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your story was was actually for me difficult to read. Um, your your husband had not always been faithful and he had made some strange decisions about handling the family's money and then suddenly he had cancer and as you say you had only five weeks before he died um well it's difficult for me to live through it (laughs) yes yeah yeah you must be a very strong person how old were you boys I think so. That's what everyone tells me anyway. Okay. So, um, what came, how did each of you come to find this hospice support group? Well, let me uh, go first. Um, First off, I'm not a real touchy-feely person. But there was something uh, very soon after Nancy died that was, telling me, you know, you must enroll in the hospice grief support counseling, uh, you know, over at our hospice of uh, Dayton. And I went over and said, I'd like to enroll in the next class. And I said, well, when did your wife die? 
oh, well, you haven't had enough time for this course to be of any real use to you. You need to wait and come back much later. And I felt an absolute compulsion that I must be in this next uh, hospice grief support class. And, of course, uh, by being in that class, I ended up meeting Jerry and falling in love and getting married. So there's something to feelings of compulsion. Jerry? <laughs> okay. Oh, uh, well, believe it or not, I ended up uh, going to, to the hospice support group uh, because a bill collector came to my door. <laughs> uh, I guess you haven't elaborated in this conversation, but, you know, you, you've read it in the book of all the financial um, problems that I was having. Uh, wasn't aware that we had, but he had made some last-minute bad decisions and had tried to hide it all from me. But uh, So I was still I was trying to deal with that, too. And a, a real nice bill collector came to the door about um, we had rental properties, and... Um, uh, making the payments for the rental properties. Well, we had uh, tenants who um, owed us gobs and gobs of money. My husband would just let them kind of slide, and uh, it was just with his income, we could. I guess we were handling it. But um, then, when he was gone, I didn't have his income, and so the rental properties, the mortgages weren't being paid. But anyway, I guess I broke down at the door, uh, which I did often back then. <laughs> And uh, was sobbing, and he went to um, one of the uh, Methodist church here in the area. And he said, ma'am, he said, you know what? He said, you sound like you really need to go to a support group for grief. He said, our church uh, runs one, and I think that would be really good for you. <laughs> so afterwards, I got online and looked it up and, and found this support group, and that's how I ended up there. Is a support group something that you recommend for almost everybody who is dealing with the loss of a spouse? I think I would. It can't hurt. uh, Absolutely. If you don't like it, you don't have to uh, keep coming back. But uh, it was the one at least run by hospice. And, of course, you know, in Jerry's case, you would have expected her, with her husband being a chaplain, to have gone to a church-based one, and she ended up something kind of, nudged her to go to the hospice one rather than a uh, uh, church group. But uh, we obviously got a lot out of it. It's not a matchmaking service by any means, but uh, they understand, and the people in your group understand, and you end up uh, getting a level of intimacy and friendship with the other people in your support group that is for the rest of your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that yeah, sounds we're still very. A couple of the people that we were in the group with. Yeah, it it sounds like it would be really helpful for a lot of people, because I know after a loss, um, there are people who are hard to talk to. They don't really want to listen to how you feel uh, in the times when you're scared or lonely or depressed, or feeling guilty or feeling regrets. And a lot of that happens, right? Oh, yeah. I think if people also, they, um, um, you know, they don't really understand unless they've been through it themselves. Mm-hmm. And uh, everyone in hospice, they've been there. 
and mm-hmm. they do under they do understand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had a thing uh, with uh, friends who are generally uh, very well meaning and trying to help you. But uh, one of the things both of us experienced and we found that every other person experienced is that someone trying to help you will say, I know just how you feel, and you bite your tongue and you want to yell back at them, oh, no, you don't, and you don't do that because you know they're trying to help. But it's things like that. Nobody has to say that in the support group because you know they understand how you feel. Right. Yeah, I... I I personally am in favor of maybe not screaming at them, but saying out loud, no, you don't. (laughs) You really don't know how I feel. (laughs) That's not helpful. (laughs) Um, So what are, what are some of the, um, well, some of the things that you talked about in your book were, Reflecting back on the marriage, switching from just being miserable and unfocused to doing some analysis of of what the relationship was like, what you missed in the relationship. Tell me a little more about that. Well, uh, what we came to realize that the first most, at least to us, the most important step in uh, the grieving process, and we didn't see this written anywhere, was that you must accept, both intellectually, and you know that's a fact because you have a death certificate in your hand, but emotionally, that your life has irrevocably changed. And that sounds like such an easy thing to do, but it really isn't. So the uh, whole first part of our book was uh, talking about how do you force yourself to uh, realize that your life has irrevocably changed and uh, we found it useful to, uh, and you're going to be crying a lot anyway, but to actually focus on what do I really miss, uh, the sharing, uh, the uh, physical presence, the emotional support, and so forth. And as you do that, you end up feeling a lot worse and crying a lot more, but it moves you towards that goal of my life has irrevocably changed. And once you accept that, uh, then you're really ready to move on. And there are people who will run back and forth in frenetic activity trying to uh, escape that fact, and they want to really go back, and there is no going back, but they run back and forth so fast that uh, they don't realize that you have to accept and understand this before you can move forward. Mm-hmm. One of the powerful things that I picked up in your book is uh, uh, features of of how your life is irrevocably changed. You know, you're lonely. You go to a restaurant and most of the other people at the restaurant are couples and the other half of your couple isn't there anymore. Um, I think one of one of you wrote uh, you you realize that there is the person who really knew you, the person you confided in for twenty five or thirty three years, um, isn't there anymore. There's nobody left who really knows you as deeply as your former spouse did, and that's that's a tough place to be. Well, I write in the book about it. Uh, the realization that hit me is that I was an only grandchild. 
And when my mother uh, died at age 90, it was my wife Nancy who was with me, and I felt you know, that I wanted her to understand my life before we had met. And uh, when she was gone, when it really hit me, there wasn't anybody in the whole world who really knew my life and where, where I'd been and what I had done. And uh, that kind of loneliness is pretty intense. Mm-hmm. Okay. We're going to take a short break now, and then we'll come back and talk about the path to healing, how you come out of the loneliness and create your new life. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. Family members too often find themselves in court arguing about separation, parenting schedules, financial issues, divorce, estates, or care of an elderly relative. There's a better way to solve a family problem. Work with a professional mediator in private, confidential meetings. To learn more, visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's apfmnet.org. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. I'm Virginia Collin, talking today with Fred and Jerry Abrams, authors of Thanks for the Dance, a book about transforming grief into gratitude as you, as you recover from the loss of a spouse. Fred, you were saying during the break something about a Buddhist proverb that's highly applicable here. What's that? Yes. And it goes, uh, pain is inevitable, 
but suffering is optional. And there isn't anything that's going to take away the pain of the loss of a long and happy marriage. But what we found was a pathway to reducing or eliminating the suffering that goes with it. And that was uh, every time you're overwhelmed with grief, uh, try to look about what you're thankful about and grateful for. Uh, and, of course, that's where the title of the book really uh, came from, is that neither of us are country and western fans, but there was a Garth Brooks song called The Dance that really uh, spoke to both of us. And essentially, if you haven't heard the song, uh, it's that the singer could have avoided all the pain and suffering that he's going through, but the price of that would have been missing the dance. And therefore, thanks for the dance says, you should be grateful for the dance you had rather than bemoaning the fact that it has now ended. Mm-hmm. And both of you were able to do that. You were able to refocus uh, the way you thought about what you'd lost so that instead of just feeling miserable because you've lost it, you could be grateful that for a long time you had that wonderful relationship. Yes. But, you know, there are a lot of things that, uh, you know, happen to you. The way you feel, you know, you feel like there's a big hole in you, the part of you is uh, missing. Uh, there are, you know, simple things that you're used to coming in the door and saying, honey, I'm home, and it's an empty house now. Uh, special occasions like holidays that need to be uh, shared, uh, regrets, anger. Sometimes even uh, anger at God for not answering the prayers that, you know, please save my spouse and so forth. You know, anger at your spouse, anger at doctors and so forth. And uh, that whole process uh, also had a few unexpected potholes. And that was a very important part of our book was to talk about uh, the potholes in that process of recovery. What are those potholes? Well, um, Okay, you're consumed by grief and you're crying and you're depressed and all you want to do is, you know, climb into bed, pull the covers up over your head, make it all go away. But you finally, at some point, start to think that the road is smoothing out and, you know, I'm actually starting to get better and over this and bam, you hit a pothole. And an example, uh, you hear a song on the uh, radio or you pass a certain spot or Someone says something. You know, in my case, uh, Nancy's and my uh, favorite song was Leaving on a Jet Plane. And the first time that I heard that, after she died and I was starting to recover, I mean, I was just devastated. I pulled over to the side of the road and just bawled because it brought back everything, and it was so unexpected uh, to have that happen. And uh, we asked in our grief support group, and the other people had had the same thing, but there was nothing in any of the writing or uh, in any of the discussion in the support group about that. So we decided to give it a name, and we called it blindsiding. And we discovered that giving it a name and also expecting that this is going to happen is half the answer to dealing with. And by the way, it happens five years later and sometimes even ten years later that it will uh, You'll just be blindsided by something like that. 
So the secret is give it a name and just say, I've been blindsided. Have a friend who understands that, and you can call them. Say, I've been blindsided. I need to talk about it. And in doing that, uh, the impact of that, it will continue to happen, but the impact of it will be considerably less. I see. You did something interesting, Fred. You actually made a CD that collected the songs that might at some point have blindsided you. Yes. Yeah. And I played tell me, that Tell me a little more about that. I just played it repeatedly, and I found myself crying less and less as I would listen to them. And that was part of that emotional acceptance that your life has changed. And, in a way, gratitude that Nancy and I had shared all those wonderful songs. And I started bringing back good memories instead of uh, stomping me down with grief. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, C.S. Lewis wrote about a grief observed. He wrote about... Uh, his experience after the loss of his wife. Um, how was your experience similar to what he had to say? Well, he's actually uh, right on. A lot of experts will talk to you about the stages of grief, you know, the denial and the anger and the uh, negotiating and so forth. And uh, what C.S. Lewis said in his book and what we discovered is it's a uh, circle. It's continuous. It's round and round, and you don't progress in an orderly fashion, and anybody who suggests that you do hasn't been there. So uh, he referred to it, uh, you, know, you know, it's not a linear thing, even maybe a spiral downward as it just, you know, you think you're getting better, and then you get blindsided, although nobody talks about the blindsiding that we have found anywhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think uh, C.S. Lewis talked about hoping you're going in a spiral that leads somewhere, not just going round and round in circles that go nowhere. Yeah, well, and that can lead you to depression, too. That's true. You could spiral down toward depression, or you could spiral up towards healing. Yes. Okay. Let's talk about depression a little bit, because I know that's a huge, huge problem for a lot of people when they lose a spouse. And you could, I'm sure you know much more about it than I do. <laughs> well, okay, Maybe um, from people you've met in your support group or from your own experience. What, right. what can you tell me about well, coping? With- uh, we found that you know, all of us are depressed over having lost the spouse. But there is a real difference between being depressed and really entering into a state of depression. Because when you're in depression, those feelings are controlling your life. And you need to do something to keep them from uh, doing that. In the book, we uh, give you know, a couple of uh, analogies about uh, how do you regain control. And For those of us who live in the north and drive on icy roads in the winter... When you go into a skid, what do you do? And um, the natural tendency of the untrained driver is, well, I'm going to turn against the skid and come out of it. And, of course, that just deepens it. Yeah, that sets your car spinning. Pardon? That makes your car go spinning. (laughs) Yes. So you have to turn into the spin to uh, 
uh, actually regain control of it. And the analogy there is turning into the spin is kind of like my making the a CD of all the songs. You know, I'm forcing myself into it to regain control. Uh, I'm a pilot. You mentioned that at the beginning, but uh, pilots have something called the graveyard spiral, which is a descending tight turn. And the tendency, if you are on instruments and in the weather, is you feel yourself going down and you pull back on the controls to try to get out, and that just tightens it and makes it worse. So the response is you first roll wings level, and then you pull up. So to avoid depression, you have to figure out how do you roll your wings level uh, before you start the uh, climb back to normalcy. I see. That's good analogy. Hermits, yeah, hermits tend to become depressed because they don't want to go out and have fun again. And Oliver Wendell Holmes really said it well. Happiness is inactivity. And you don't quit playing because you grow old. You grow old because you quit playing. Oh, I like that. Yeah, Winston. That Churchill. probably applies for all of us. Even yeah. By those the way, the book uh, was uh, well, it went through the Thomas Nelson uh, process, which is a Christian publisher, and they have some pretty tight rules. And we had some really good quotes in the book that they insisted had to come out. And one was by Winston Churchill, and it said, "When you find yourself in hell." Keep going. <laughs> and, uh, you know, uh, a Thomas Nelson book cannot use that context. So hopefully family matters on your program can. Okay. <laughs> I think we'll be all right. <laughs> so tell me a little more specifically, what are the things that each of you did to begin to climb out of the hole of you know, feeling depressed, feeling a sense of despair. I think it was different for the two of you. Jerry, you you really had to take care of practical problems and take care of your sons. Yes? Right, right. And to tell you the truth, I didn't actually deal, I don't think, uh, really deal with my own feelings until... Oh, gee, even after we were married and uh, a couple years into it, um, I spent some time with a counselor talking. and Because um, for me, not only, I mean, I did love my husband very much, but towards the end there were so many things that I did not really know about him and did not know that he was doing. Mm-hmm. So... Being the type of person that I am, I was, like, trying to figure it out, figure him out, figure out the situation. And, you know, one counselor just said, you know, you may never figure this out, and that's okay. Mm -hmm. So from there, I think uh, she was a really good counselor. I was able to kind of just move on from that. So sometimes, you know, it's not all done right away. It was Mm -hmm. several years later. Mm-hmm. And I, I felt as a mother that I needed to, you know, I, I, yes, I would love to have crawled in bed and pulled the covers up. In fact, I said, you know, if I could have run away to another country or dug a hole and crawled into it, that would have been wonderful. But, you know, with two sons who were um, just graduating college age, they were just absolutely despondent themselves. And, in fact, the oldest one 
had contacted a suicide hotline once or twice. Um, I don't know that he was seriously uh, considering suicide, but he was needing, you know, someone to talk to, very despondent. Um, I had to make them my first priority. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, that happened. They went on and, you know, have built their lives. And um, so it was kind of like after the fact, I had to kind of go back a little bit and and <laughs> work through it myself. Yeah, so years just down the do- road. Yeah, it sounds like due to the circumstances you were in, you had to take care of practical problems and take care of kids. You pretty much had to postpone your grieving. Yes, yes. Yes, I know our main focus in this show is about how you recover from the loss of a spouse, but did you want to say anything else about how your boys recovered? What helped them? You don't have to if you don't want to. (laughs) No, why don't you start, Fred, with... Well, uh, one of the things that we did in the book uh, near the end is we have a chapter where uh, all four of our kids and uh, people that we knew, uh, Jerry's mom, uh, Nancy's mom, uh, you know, wrote their impressions of what they saw us go through. And um, or, yeah, and my kids were already married with kids of their own, um, and uh, I'm not sure my son is still completely over it 11 years later. I know my daughter is, and the family that we have right now are together. But my kids were already, uh, you know, educated, married, and uh, kids of their own, which uh, gave them a focus of their life. Whereas, as Jerry just said, her focus was trying to survive with her two boys. Jerry? Mm-hmm. Yeah. In fact, there was one time that um, both the boys' tensions were high, and the boys, uh, being just two years apart, they did the boy thing and was uh, fighting back and forth with themselves. They were, you know, quarreling. And I said, you know, look, if we stick together, we'll pull through this. But if we're going to fight each other, there's no way we can get through this. So um, we did. We pulled together, and we were there for each other. We're ex- extremely close now, myself and my sons. Um, you know, they because they saw what you know I went through and how I, you know I was there for them the whole time. And um, they have since gone on and we uh, built their lives. They. Uh, with the help of Fred, and he's a big part of it, got them on the track to college because, well, the youngest one had just graduated from high school. The oldest one was um, like 20 years old. And he and his father had talked about doing real real estate investing together at the time. And um, so when he died, of course, all of that fell through the cracks. And then, of course, there was the housing recession not too many years after that. But he went on, uh, the oldest one went on and started college and found that he was very good at chemistry and uh, continued that as a major and graduated summa cum laude. And he had just been a BC student in high school, but he really, you know, applied himself. And I think a lot of it was 
he was kind of dedicating his career to his father, memory of his father. Mm-hmm. And uh, so then he got accepted, early acceptance to medical school, and he's now a second-year medical resident, uh, emergency medicine. Well, that's excellent. I'm he's glad married to hear and it. has a baby. And then my youngest one went on to school. Uh, he was always, I think, didn't feel really com- uh, confident. And uh, Fred recognized that he was highly uh, intelligent and uh, offered to pay for him to take the Menza test. And he did, and he came out, and he's like, oh, that was piece of cake. Well, we knew he'd passed, and he did. And uh, so Fred always then kind of threw that back at him, said, you know, you're smarter than most people. There's no reason why you can't do this or that. So he went through college and got his degree in engineering, and he's a mechanical engineer now, and he's married. All right. I'm glad to hear that they're doing well. We're going to take another break. I'll be back uh, shortly with Fred and Jerry Abrams discussing healing after the loss of a spouse. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Most adults are able to make good decisions about how their families can move forward. They do not need to rely on courts to make such decisions, especially in cases of divorce. Far too many people suffer unnecessary anguish because they do not know what family mediators can do. We help people discuss problems constructively in a private, confidential setting. We help them stop fighting and stay out of court. To learn more about mediation and other family matters, visit ColinFamilyMediationGroup.com. Colin has one L and no S. Are you struggling with emotional, financial, and legal stress related to divorce? The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia by Virginia Collin and Rebecca Martin teaches how to handle these processes in any state with special attention to Virginia's laws. This book can help you take care of yourself, get free legal advice, develop a good co-parenting plan, keep expenses down, and arrange a do-it-yourself divorce. The Guide to Low-Cost Divorce in Virginia is available from Amazon for just $4.99. No one can tell you how much money you'll have or when you'll see your children, right? Sadly, that's wrong. It happens every day in divorce court. Don't let it happen to you. When dealing with separation, divorce, or co-parenting, there is a better way. Family mediation. Save time, save money, and make good plans for your children. Visit the Academy of Professional Family Mediators at apfmnet.org. That's A-P-F-M-N-E-T dot O-R-G. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Family Matters. To reach Dr. Virginia Collin or today's guest, 
please call into the program at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You may also send an email to radio show at com. Now, back to Family Matters. Fred and Jerry Abrams are the authors of Thanks for the Dance, a book about uh, dealing with the loss of a spouse and rebuilding your life afterwards. Fred or Jerry, whoever wants to talk first, tell me what, what exercise helped you the most in making the transition? Well, you know, when we realized that, you know, gratefulness was really uh, the the answer, and we, we're both avid readers. That's probably one of our prime hobbies. But uh, we kept coming across how important gratitude really was. Uh, you know, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, you know, said, gratitude changes pangs of memory into thankful joy, and he wrote that from a Nazi prison. Uh, Elie Wiesel, who survived the Holocaust, no one is as capable of gratitude as one who has emerged from the kingdom of the night. And, of course, the Bible in First uh, Thessalonians says, be thankful in all circumstances. And obviously that's not saying for the circumstance, but in the circumstance. So uh, what we did uh, was to write down in priority order the happiest moments of our life. And we held it to a dozen. So we each listed the 12 happiest moments of our life. And once we had each done that, we then looked at that list and said, how many of those involved our late spouse? And, uh, well, my background is mathematics, so immediately I convert this into statistical analysis. And that drives me very nuts. But in my case, I had spent 48% of my life with Nancy, but my list of a dozen, 75% of the happiest moments of my life involved Nancy. And, you know, how could you not be grateful for the dance that you had? Mm -hmm. Uh, Jerry's statistics were even more amazing. Jerry? Do you have have those statistics handy, Jerry? Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, Of course, having children was uh, way up on my list. Um, Motherhood's always been very important to me. Um, So... yeah. Marrying my husband at the time was, and uh, becoming a registered nurse was important. Yeah. You know, in, in Jerry's case, you know, she had spent 55% of her life with Steve, and 83% of her dozen happiest moments involved Steve. So it really puts your whole life into perspective and uh, relates right to the title of the book, How Awful Your Life Would Have Been If You Had Missed All That. So when you're overwhelmed with grief, that's how you do the transformation is, you know, here is what I would have missed. And at that point, you can then start rebuilding your life, Mm -hmm. but not until you've really dealt with the grief, and that's the secret of doing it. Mm -hmm. So that's a very practical tool that people can get from your book or get from this radio interview, and, and they can use that. Just you know, do some do some analyzing. Think about how precious what you had was, and how you would not want to have missed that, even though you're in pain right now. Right. 
Um, something else that your book mentions that helps you, um, you know, get back to living your life in a new way um, is finding people to trust. You found, I think you both found that people you thought were friends fell away and people who had not previously been your friends turned out to be the people you could talk to about what really mattered. Yeah, you, you found that uh, in many cases, friends... Uh, so, because they knew your late spouse, they see in that their own potential for loss and their own mortality, and it I, maybe you start to make them uncomfortable. But you find friends, and real friends are the ones who want you to come into their presence and for them to comfort you while you cry, and that they feel it's an honor, you know, for you to be crying and to having grief in their presence, and you know. People who were acquaintances turned into our closest friends, and people that were really friends became more like acquaintances. It was uh, not expected. Mm-hmm. Is that common? Is that what other pe- people in your support group also experienced? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, I think it's a little bit different maybe for everyone, too. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, if you have family... If you have friends, if you have a church, uh, if you have a support group, uh, and if your friends are in your church and part of your support group, it, it all helps. But uh, it isn't something that you really want to do alone. Mm-hmm. But okay. basically, I kind of started out doing it that way. I really did not have the support that uh, that I think uh, Fred had or that a lot of times other people have. Um, I didn't have family really close, and I can't say the family really stepped up to the bat with what I was going through. Of course, I'm not sure if anyone could have figured it out at the time. But uh, there were two men from our church that um, kind of um, took pity on me and would go offer to go to the attorney's office, probate office, with me each time I went because I would just sit there and cry and not really even hear a word that was being said. And... Um, you know, it was just so nice. I later told one of the wives that I was so thankful for her allowing her husband to do that. And she said, you know, she would want someone to do that for her if she had lost her husband and had all the financial mess that um, I had. So I'm still to this day very grateful for those two men. Mm-hmm. One of the other things your book mentions as uh, something that's helpful when you're going through this, is embracing your passions. Tell me more about that. Okay. Uh, Essentially, when you start thinking about rebuilding your life, it's much more of a blank blackboard than you might think. Uh, First, ask yourself, you know, what was the reality of my life? You know, in my case, married for 33 years. And you're not looking for negatives in that relationship, but what compromises did I make as having part of a, being part of a successful uh, marriage? And you have to realize right away those don't apply uh, to your new life anymore. But they were compromises that you weren't angry about or uh, resentful about. You know, in my case, I grew up with a dog. I love animals. Nancy did not want pets in our house. Well, an indication, when each of our kids moved out on their own, they immediately got pets. And I knew that my life forward would have a dog. And uh, as luck would have it, 
Jerry had a dog that uh, <laughs> came to our relationship. And in fact, we're uh, we have a rescue dog now, and we're heading off to maybe get a second rescue dog. But the idea of uh, passions is what did I really want to do with my life? And so few people have really uh, delved into what their passions are. And uh, so let me give a quick definition. You know, you are passionate about something that you always look forward to doing, and when you're doing it, time flies by just so fast that you can't believe that you don't have any more time. So uh, essentially, you find yourself lost in what you're doing. You found what you ought to be doing. If it's your work, if you're lost in your work, you found your work. Confucius summarized it well. Choose a job you love, and you will never have to work a day in your life. So uh, as a teacher consultant in leadership, uh, I came up with something years ago called the passion plot. And essentially, uh, I'll give a quick summary of how to do that, and it's better explained in the book. But if you consider that the foundation of most everyone's life is their family, draw a circle. And that circle represents your passion for your family and your relationship. And now think about three things that fit that definition of passion that are not family-related. In my case, I love to mentor and teach, uh, you know, help young people and so forth. I love to create stuff and invent and write. And I love to fly airplanes. So I chose those as my three passions. Take those three and make a triangle of them. And then look at the intersection of the sides and ask yourself, what could I be doing as I rebuild my life that would satisfy any one of those three passions or ideally two of the passions at the same time? So it shouldn't come as a surprise if I like to mentor and teach and I like to fly. I'm a flight instructor. (laughs) So I get to teach people to fly airplanes. you know, creating and flying. Uh, I uh, was a program manager for developing a new fighter aircraft for the Air Force. And mentoring and creating is project management, and that's what I do for a living. Um, as, uh, as Jerry did this, um, she, one of her three was uh, helping vulnerable children. And I realized that that was really my fourth leg if I hadn't done a triangle. And because uh, when I was in Vietnam, in addition to flying uh, fighters, I was also a civic action officer for kids in an orphanage, a uh, school, and a leper colony. And I realized that helping vulnerable kids, and all of a sudden we shared a passion. And, uh, you know, that became a, an important part of uh, our marriage is figuring out, okay, what do we do together uh, to help vulnerable kids? It's a really uh, powerful exercise to do. As I said, so few people ever really get in touch and stop to think about what their passions are. But that's, to me at least, at the heart of the rebuilding of your life. And we did go forward with that. Uh, I think the book probably uh, talks about it uh, we built a uh, sanctuary in Kenya for AIDS orphans uh, where they can feel free and uh, uh, safe and uh, they're educated and has a clinic and a farm, et cetera. So that's kind of how we uh, took our passions and went forward with it. Yeah. Uh, Jerry, uh, it's through my Rotary Club. The club needed a project manager to lead the effort. 
voila, I'm a project manager. And, and Jerry is in her element when she is with the kids uh, in the slum uh, from which they are rescued. So it's just been an amazing, it has changed our lives more than it is possible to even describe. Wow. We have a few minutes left, and the two of you were fortunate. You found each other relatively soon after losing your spouses, and clearly you fit together well. This is uh, We're talking about being married for 10 years now. You sound happy to me. What advice do you have for other people considering the question of whether to remarry, how to choose a new partner if they want to remarry? Well, obviously, you want you know you know a whole lot more about marriage after you've been married for twenty five years. It's not like uh, uh, becoming a uh, being a teenager, or a young twenty, and uh, falling in love. But I, the most important part, or advice, or counsel that I would offer to somebody, is that falling in love a second time is exactly like having your second child. You don't love the first child any less. You expand and love even more. And uh, that was a real surprise because uh, you think, well, I'm getting married again, so I'm pushing my late wife into the background. And it, it's not really true. Uh, you really, uh, you, you actually feel like a teenager again when you fall in love again. But... Uh, you're also a lot more logical and analytical about it. And Jerry rides me all the time, and she even wrote in the book that, you know, I'm just too analytical. But, you know, <laughs> I made up a, a, a list, and she did too. What was important to us in uh, choosing our first spouse? And now, this many years later, quarter century plus later, what's important now? And the names of those things... And the order of them doesn't change significantly. There may be something new that creeps onto the list or something that drops way down on the list just because of your age and experience. But it's a really interesting exercise is to say, why is it that I was so attracted to and uh, happy with my first spouse? And what's really important to me now? And you add a little bit of logical analysis to all of the emotion that's swirling around uh, in finding someone that you relate to and fall in love with. Well, while we're talking about analysis, I will take the opportunity to mention that anyone remarrying needs to think about what it's going to be like blending families and how are you going to deal with financial questions because... Maybe you each have children who have expectations about what's going to happen with the family money. And if you have any difficulty talking about those things with each other, maybe meet with a family mediator to help you have the conversation because that's a really important conversation to have. I also want to let my listeners know that they can find part of your book, all of Chapter 1, in fact, on your website www.thanksforthedance.com and a little bit else there. In a tiny moment that we have left, is there anything that you would like to repeat for emphasis or add? Well, I would quickly like to add the fact that uh, when you do get remarried, um, 
you know, you don't push your former spouse out of your mind or um, out of your memories. Uh, we still sit together sometimes and cry over things that, you know, memories of our previous spouses. And uh, I have known some people that if they remarry someone who wasn't a widower or widower but divorced, then they demand that the uh, the new partner remove all memories, pictures, et cetera, from their home, and you just can't do that. You know, we have pictures of uh, of Nancy, and we have pictures of my husband and our blended families together. So it's worked well for us, but... Um, well, what I guess what's important is that who Jerry is, the person I love, but who she is, is a part of the 27 years she spent with Steve. And who I am is a part of the 33 years that I spent with Nancy. And it would be unrealistic or not a good foundation for a relationship to say, forget all of that. And especially if you're being grateful for what you had during all that time. And as I say, you know, in Jerry's case, 80-plus percent of her happiest moments while Steve was alive, or of her life up to the time Steve died, involved Steve. How could she right. not wipe that away? Okay. I want to thank you both for being on the show. Happy anniversary. Mm, thank you. Thank you for joining us this week on Family Matters. Please tune in for another edition featuring host Dr. Virginia Collin next Tuesday at 3 p.m. Pacific Time, 6 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Be kind, heal, and grow. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. 